in which the debt is actually collected. We talked about liens, we talked about foreclosures, we talked about expropriation. It's all in theory. Now we get to the practical. The first step is that the lender has to bring his promissory note to the bedin, to the court. It has to be authenticated. The court has to research, make sure the witnesses are real, make sure these are the signatures of the witnesses, and the court authenticates this document. Only after that do they say to the borrower, pay. We have a promissory note that you owe the lender so much and so much. Pay. Show me the money. We never have the lender go into the holdings and possessions of the borrower until there is a demand first. Even in our world, the word demand is a very important word. You have a demand and then you pay. There's no demand, you don't pay. What if the judge of the Beddin made a mistake? And he brought the lender down into the properties and possessions of the borrower before a demand was made. We remove him. It's inappropriate. Next scenario. What if the borrower said, I'm going to pay. You know anybody who says, I'm going to pay. Kibu Lizman, give me time. Give me just a little more time. Kidesha Elva Miyacha in order that I can borrow from someone else. A Mashkin, or in order that I can collateralize something and get money. A Yemkar, I can sell, I'm gonna sell on, on, on eBay. On Craigslist, the Ovi Amois, and I will deliver the money. I just need a little more time. I mean, what happened to all the time you had till now? Let's not go into it. Craven Lizman, then the court is kind enough to give him, allocate more time for him. How much more time? Shleshim Yang, 30 more days. The Ain Nachaiven, I said the Mashkin. At this point in time, we do not require that he bring security, movable property. Why? So the Rambam explains. Very simple. Had there been valuable movable objects to cover this debt, the courts would have collected from these movable objects a long time ago. If the lender is becoming impatient, he has a right to ask the court to impose a ban of ostracism against anyone who possesses money, who possesses valuable objects, and is just talking a lot. The lender has a right to request that excommunication by the court. Now, we do not demand that the borrower bring a guarantor until he pays. It's late in the game, so we're not going to suddenly demand a guarantor. So now we gave him 30 days. Show him what if the 30 days are complete, delay and he still doesn't, doesn't pay. He did not deliver the money. Based in the court, Christian write Adrachta, a document called an Adrachta. We referred to this earlier, and he explains over here in the notes that the Adrachta is a bill granting the lender power of attorney to seize property belonging to the borrower. That's the document called an Adrachta. Where does the word Adrachta come from? Sounds like Latin. Rashi explains that the root of the word meaning pursue, and quotes a parallel in Shoftim. Sefer HaTrumot explains that the root is from the word Dorech, which means exercise authority. The Ramoy explains that it comes from the word Madrich, which means instruct. We instruct the lender to collect from the borrower. And more particulars of the Adrachta are coming up. So the courts issue an Adrachto. Similarly speaking, if to begin with, the borrower said when the demand was presented, I'm not paying nothing. Get away from me. Or as they said back in Newark when I was a kid, do me something. They don't have to wait 30 days. Because the reward for belligerence is you get an immediate Adrachta. We don't need to take attitude and have patience. We don't give any more time. Similarly speaking, all of the above was for a promissory note, which is a contract, a written agreement with signatures and all that. What if it's an oral loan? Or just an admission of debt? In the case of an oral loan, or in the case of an admission of debt, we learned, what is the difference? You cannot expropriate property that was sold by the borrower to someone else, because how was the buyer to know? Because a promissory note has witnesses, witnesses talk, and the word gets around. The oral debt, the witnesses don't exist, and the word doesn't get around. Again, as I've said tens of times, in our world, you have the benefit of a title search, title insurance, title companies. Here you have nothing. Here you just have the rumor of the coffee houses. So therefore, when it's an oral loan, the adrachta can only extend to free and clear property, not to property that has been purchased by a buyer. Based on the Omar, what if the argument, the borrower claims and says, is the borrower says, I'm very impressed with your document. I'm very impressed with your promissory note. I'm very impressed that you authenticated it. Let me tell you, it's a forgery. It's a forgery. It's worth nothing. I'll bring proof, and I'll show it's foolish. Not a worthless. And the witness I'm bringing happens to be in this place. And he gives the location. He's in, he's in Las Vegas. Behain, plain, plain, and the witnesses are, and he gives the names. So this is a pretty serious response. He says, it's a forgery, and I have proof. says, If the judges of the Bedin are impressed, and it sounds like there is substance here, we give time to bring his witnesses. It takes time to send a messenger, to locate the witnesses, to bring the witnesses. So he's entitled to time. Why? Because it sounds real. However, if it sounds to the court that he's just hacking a Chinese, he's just raising his false claims and stories, what we say in our world, he's buying time, we say to him, Shalem, first pay, show me the money. And then once you pay, if you bring proof, we'll refund you. You'll get a full refund, no problem. But you seem to be just quoting a lot of hot air here. Now, the problem is, what happens if we make the borrower pay? What if the lender was a strong guy, a tough guy? He was a muscle man. Once he gets it, you can't take it away from him because he's too powerful. Should the court take a chance? In that case, it's best to place the money in the hands of a safe, secure third party. 
You put it into an escrow account, as we say here in California. Moving right along, we established time for him to bring proof because he can prove that the document, the promissory note is a forgery. So we gave him time. We and the time arrived. He didn't come. What else is new? We extend a little more and we wait. One more Monday, one more Thursday, and one more Monday. Why Monday, Thursday, Monday? Because that's when the courts met. The courts would meet every Monday and Thursday. So we give him three more court days. Monday, Thursday, Monday. If he still doesn't show up, so we know that all of this was an exercise in procrastination. We go to the next step. Now we write a psicha. What is a psicha? It's a court document intended to make known that a cherim, a ban of ostracism, was issued. Psicha comes from the word, the opening one. It's the first of legal documents composed to a series of documents leading to the actual expropriation of property. So it's the opening document. Up to now was an adrachta, the right to explore. Now it's a psicha. On the Shantan, and he's put into excommunication, a ban of excommunication. We learn the details in a ban of excommunication, a whole list of things you can't do when somebody is under a ban of excommunication, including allowing him into a shul and calling up to the Torah and giving him an, uh, an, an, an marriage and, and doing business with him. The details were earlier in the laws of Torah. And we wait for him. We'll see if this psicha has any effect on him. And this ban holds for 90 days. Another 90 days. Why do we go 90 days? The first 30 days. We hope that he's trying to borrow. And so in the middle 90 days, the middle 30, we hope that he's trying to sell properties. In the last 30 days, we hope he has a buyer. And the buyer is trying to locate financing. That's why we give him an extra 90 days. Obviously, you need a lot of patience for all this. If the 90 days pass, and he still hasn't come. So all of this didn't help. Now the Bezin writes an adrachta, and we release him of his ban of ostracism. So now the psicha is replaced by an adrachta. As a rule, before you write an adrachta, giving the lender permission to take properties from the borrower or his buyers, you usually have to advise the borrower that you're doing that. The borrower needs notice. Today you would send him an email. As long as he is two days travel or less from the courts. If he's two days travel or more, this information, this notice is foregone. He's not required. When does this apply? If for the 90 days that we just gave him, he keeps using excuses. And he says, Now I'm going to bring proof. I'm going to nullify the document. Tomorrow. We all know people like that. They're so impressive. This afternoon. Oh, he didn't show. Tomorrow. And this goes on for 90 days. But if he said to begin, to begin with clearly, I am not coming to court. Do me something. Immediately the court issues this adrachta, permitting the lender to go into the properties of the buyer, uh, of the borrower, whether it's property, or movable objects. Now, all of the above discussion was about lenders and borrowers. There's another scenario, and that is, Mr. A gave Mr. B an item for safekeeping. He says, here's $100,000, I need to go out of town, watch my money. He comes back, and he says, uh, manana, it's coming, it's going, I forgot the combination to the safe. <laughs> Who can forget combination? You don't even have to wait 90 days. You immediately write an adrachta. Why? You may ask why, or as we say in French, pourquoi? Why is the safekeeping object different than the loan? The answer is a very important one. Because the principle is, as we learned earlier, milba when you lend somebody money, the intent is they spend it. You don't expect them to have it. When you give something, someone for safekeeping, they're not something for safekeeping, they're not allowed to spend it. If they spend it, they're a thief. So there is no time that is required. You either have it or you're a thief. Hey, we stated above that which was stated above, that if he doesn't come at the end of 90 days, we write this which is the document permitting him to go and expropriate properties. Al The above is for real property. but for movable objects. I feel like I'm even after 90 days, because as long as he still says, and he sounds somewhat sincere, now I'm going to bring proof. I'm going to show you that the document is a forgery. We hold off and do not allow the lender to take the movable objects. Why? Because unlike real estate, which can really not be taken anywhere, where are you going to take the real estate? It's attached to the ground. Where are you going to ruin the real estate? Maybe, but real estate is real estate. Movable objects. What if you had a seven-layer cake? You'll eat the seven-layer cake. And then the borrower is going to bring proof that it's a forgery and he will have taken his gold or silver. He's not going to find anything to recoup. Even if the lender had real estate, you can't rely that you're going to take back real estate. Maybe the value is going to drop. Maybe it's going to become dried out. Who knows what's going to happen? Now we get to Tachlis. How does the court write the Adrachta? If they brought him down to available property belonging to the borrower, free and clear, they say, Mr. Borrower has been found in judgment that he has to pay so and so to Mr. Lender. So we wrote this document. Zu, this here document, also the plain concerning this and this field that belongs to the borrower. We then get three knowledgeable people to appraise the property. We have to know how the property is worth. The man is owed $100,000. How much is this field worth? Is the field worth $20,000? In that case, even if he takes it, he's still owed eighty. Or is the field worth $200,000? In that case, he's getting too much. How do you know? The answer is you don't. You have to call three appraisers. And then the word is put down, the word is put out. We put ads all over. We make announcements. Property for sale. We want bits to come in. Why? Because that's how you really know what it's worth. Once we have a firm idea of the value, because of the three appraisers and the word that it's for sale, and we get real bids, we have to make sure they're not bubamices, but real bids. In general, in the world we live in, an offer is not proof of value. Because anybody can arrange this. 
you know, the guy just got out of jail. The Kenin Shtar Chayv then, and this is important in halacha, before the court or as the court issues the Adrachta, it has to destroy the promissory note because we don't want double collection. In Mahoyah Shom Shtar, if there was a promissory note, the Adrachta replaces the promissory note. All of your love is if there are free and clear properties. What if there were no free and clear properties? So the Adrachta is written somewhat differently. Each plainy, Mr. So and so, Mr. Borrower, and his Chayv is obligated to plainy to so and so. So much and so much, Mr. Chayv, she has to be obligated to a promissory note. And he did not pay his debt. And we searched and we looked and we did not find any free and clear properties. And we, the court, destroyed the promissory note, so it should not be double collected. And we gave so and so the right to inquire and to investigate. To have the power of attorney. Any possessions that he finds and any real property, which were sold even by the borrower. As long as the date of sale was after the date of loan. You can't go back and take a property that was sold before the loan was made. Yes, he can get paid. So that's the process. The lender goes and he does research. He searches. In the event that he found unencumbered fields. So we evaluate and get estimates on them. Or if we found fields that were sold or leaned. After the date of his promissory note, then he can expropriate them from them. Once we have designated a particular field or piece of real estate that we're going to expropriate, we now destroy the note. We write the next note. What is the next note called? It's called a tirpo, an expropriation note. The word comes from toref, which means to expropriate. Case case, and what's the language? Each plenty then plenty so and so zachabadin won the judgment. Litrev to be able to expropriate from the borrower the debt that he owes him. which is so much and so much. We saw the plenty from this and this field. Shalakach plenty the kach bekach is man plenty that this is buyer purchase from this and this borrower and this and this date. Okvar korano adrachto the tirpo has to say we tore the adrachto we destroyed the adrachto shayev yodei b'yishinu and we gave him the right. To expropriate and to foreclose and take this particular property. Again, we have to destroy the previous document. Every document replaces the prior document. After we write the expropriation document called the Tirpo, we bring three expert real estate appraisers into that field. And they appraise the amount of the debt as is fit. As we learned earlier, they get to take, if need be, the whole principle, and if need be, the improvement value. Because we said the other half remains with the buyer. As we explained earlier, and we did this in chapter 21, and then we make announcements for 30 days, just as we make announcements for the property of orphans, because we want to make sure that there are no buyers who are not willing to pay more, because we want the buyer and the orphan to always get the benefit of the doubt, which is why we go the extra mile. At that point in time, we have the borrower take an oath in court that he has nothing, he's not hiding money, according to the ordinance of our scholars, provided that the borrower was in town, in state, and we then require the lender who is expropriating Holding a holy object, a Torah, a stone, to take an oath, that this debt was never repaid. Or, he also has to include in the oath, not or, but and, that he never forgave this. He didn't sell it to someone else. We then take this appraisal, we bring the lender into the particular property of the borrower, and we now compose the next document. What's the next document called? A horodo, which comes from the word going down. Bringing down, we bring the lender down to the field and we allow him to manifest ownership of it. What is the language of the horodo? After we gave an appraisal to so and so, and we made announcements publicizing a pending sale for 30 days. And we caused the expropriator to take a debt. And the, the borrower, we brought him down to this in this field, that he should be able to utilize it as his. As a person uses his own possession. After this whole process, when can the guy finally enjoy the produce of this field? The answer is, once the days of announcement are over, and the process is actually complete. Some pointers here call Adrachta and Kosovo, and the Adrachta doesn't have the language. We, the courts, have torn the promissory note, and Adrachta is not a valid Adrachta. Remember, document must, place, must replace document. Otherwise, we'll have double and triple collection. The Chal Tirpa and Kosovo, and the Tirpa that doesn't have the language, we tore Adrachta, the Adrachta, and the Tirpa is not a Tirpa. The Chal Shuma, the next document is called the Shuma, and the Shuma that doesn't have the language, the Tirpa, we have destroyed the Tirpa, and the Shuma is not considered a Shuma. So that will guarantee that there's no double collection. Three experts go to do an appraisal. One expert says it's worth 100, 100 Zuzim, 100 gold pieces, $100,000. Makes no difference. It's worth 100. We're using round numbers. And two experts say it's worth 200. So what is it worth? 100 or 200? One says 200. And two say 100. Being that you have three responsible opinions of appraisers. The minor opinion, meaning the opinion that's different from the other two, is nullified. So we take the number given by two of the three because it's the same number. So we figure the guy who gave the off number is just off the wall. Off the wall. Next scenario. One guy says it's worth 100. And one guy says, one appraiser says, it's not worth 100, it's worth 80. The and the other one says it's worth 120. So we have 80, 100, and 120. Then we use 100. Because 100 is right smack in the middle between 80 and 120. That's one of the opinions. One guy says 100. One guy says 90. One guy says 130. What do we do? We make it valued at 110%. This is the system that we use. When the three opinions are different, we follow the midpoint between the two extremes. We do not take an average 
Some say, and others disagree with the Rambam and so on. Okay. Test above, Bezdin Shashomu Lutayda, Benisha Lukayah, the courts gave an appraisal in the property of a buyer, Vitoh Bechosha, when they made a mistake. Mikhram Bottle, the whole sale is null and void. Shari Hain Shashaliah, Lutayda, Velalakayah, because the court acts as an agent and proxy for the one who's expropriating and for the buyer. We learned earlier that an agent only has the right to make things better. Abalayla Abbas, never to pervert. Shashaliah, we learned earlier that when a Shaliah, an agent, messes things up, the whole deal is null and void. Bechalam Bedim, Kazahedu, and all of the Allahic authorities rule in this way. Test Zion, 16 of 17. The court doesn't estimate whether it's the properties of the borrower or the properties that are leaned or purchased by a buyer. We have the appraiser. We have the appraisal. And then, time went on. The process was completed. And suddenly the borrower gets money. Or the person from whom the property was expropriated, the buyer. Or their heirs. And they brought the lender his money. They say, here's the money. Give me back the field. Allah says they're correct. We forcibly remove the lender from the field and force him to take his debt money instead. The rule is that a phrase property that was foreclosed and expropriated can always be forced to return to its rightful owner. Why is that? It's a rabbinic law based on a verse in the Torah. What does the Torah say? You should do that which is upright and good in the eyes of God. And this is a general commandment to act ethically beyond the letter of the law. It's nice to give a family back its field. Yud Zayin, the closing law of chapter 22, Karka, real estate, real property. which was appraised to a lender, for a lender. So the lender expropriates and takes the property. The lender now has the property. Along comes a new court case. The lender owes money to somebody. They find this property. So they do an appraisal and take it. So now it's been expropriated twice. It can still revert. The second lender should not have greater power than the first lender. So it can be returned to the rightful owner. However, if the Lender sold it or gave it away as a gift. Or intentionally, willingly, had it appraised for an obligation. And he bequeathed it in his estate. All of that is considered a change of holding and is not forced to revert to its original owner. Or They appraised a piece of real estate for a woman, Benisa, since she was married. And her husband takes charge of this property and takes responsibility for it and so on and so forth. And at the end of the marriage, it has to be returned in one form or another. Or there are two situations. One is that the, the property was evaluated and she married. And the other is that it was a prop, uh, evaluated and expropriated from her in payment of her debts. The rule is that a husband who is taking charge of the possessions of his wife is treated like a buyer, not like a borrower. Or like a lender. He's not forced to return, and we don't force anybody to return to him like a borrower, not like a lender. End of chapter 22. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Malve, Vilova, lending and borrowing. Pedic Shlosha of Yeslim, chapter 23. We've been learning about the power of the document, promissory notes, that with a promissory note, it is so powerful, you can get it validated in the court and then go foreclose on the property of a buyer. Which is why. As we get into chapter 23, we will learn that we have to be meticulously cautious to make sure to dot every I and cross every T, so to speak, in the note. Therefore, when there are promissory notes that are predated, the event happens now, and you put last year's date. Sulim, they are invalid. Big problem. Why? Why? Because this promissory note that's dated early allows the person who holds the promissory note, meaning the lender, to go foreclose on the properties of buyers, who bought way before he made his loan. In other words, we learned that a promissory note is so powerful. It puts a lien on everything the borrower has, even if the borrower goes and sells property after he borrows the money. The buyer should have known that he owed money. Why? Because the note has witnesses and witnesses talk. But if the promissory note has the wrong date on it, if it was dated a year or 10 years early, then you can go back 10 years and foreclose on properties that have nothing to do with this loan because it was sold 10 years ago. Therefore, the note must be dated the day of the loan. Well, the fecal, therefore, if we can show that a promissory note is predated, is dated early, our sages penalized the person holding that note never to be able to use a predated promissory note to collect from any properties that have been sold any properties that have been in one form or another been transferred to someone else because we are concerned it's going to go back and use the date that it's dated to foreclose on properties that were sold long before this loan was originated okay so that's predated notes big problem what about post-dated notes the deal happens today and the date is next year shaded there kosher because you can't do anything tricky. On the contrary, they put the lender at a disadvantage because he loses a year. His power is worsened. The one who holds the document. Because he can only foreclose on properties that were sold after the time of the document. So he doesn't want his document to be post-dated. He wants his document to be dated on time. For example, if the loan took place in 1960 and the document says 1965, then the lender just lost five years of sales that could have taken place because the loan should say 1960. Then he can foreclose on any properties that were sold by this borrower between 1960 and 1965. The fact that he postdated it was to his disadvantage. Even though it doesn't say in the document that for whatever reason this is a postdated document, that is a caution, it's still kosher. Because the postdating of the document doesn't harm anybody. Whereas the predating does. What if a document was written by day? 
in the Jewish day, the day ends at sunset. And it was only signed at night. For example, if today's date in the Hebrew calendar is 26, then tonight is 27. So if it is written by day and signed at night, also this is unfit. Why? Because it has the wrong date. What kind of date does it have? It's predated. It's a day early. Because it's early. However, if the scribe and the witness, if everybody was busy doing the negotiation and writing and everything, and then it gets dark, even though the actual Kenyan, the act of acquisition was done at night, we're not going to get picky because this is not really predated. They were actually engaged in this business throughout. What if the document says a date which is Shabbos? Jews don't write on Shabbos. Or the 10th of Tishrei, which is Yom Kippur. We're not going to assume that the Jew wrote on Shabbos or wrote on Yom Kippur. We're going to assume that it was a post-dated note. And it happened Erev Shabbos, or Erev Yom Kippur, the day before Shabbos, or the day before Yom Kippur. The kosher, and it's kosher. Maybe it was signed the day after Yom Kippur, so in that case, it's a predated note. Maybe it was written on Sunday, and therefore it's predated, because it has Shabbos' date. Maybe it was written on the 11th of Tishrei, the day after Yom Kippur, and it has Yom Kippur's date. That would make it predated. We assume that the document is good. Because everyone knows, that Jews don't write on and therefore it was post-dated. We actually learned this earlier that we can write, we meaning the courts, the scribe, the courts, can write a document, meaning a promissory note for a borrower, even though the lender is not with him. Why? Because the borrower is taking the responsibility of the debt. He comes and says, write a document for me that I owe somebody money, why not? But the opposite should never be done. You don't write a document for a lender if there's no borrower, because maybe he's about to perpetrate a fraud. When does this apply? In the kind of document or promissory note that comes along with a symbolic act of acquisition called a Kenyan which we learned, this symbolic act of acquisition is critically important. It, it, it transforms it from theoretical to real. Because from the moment that the witnesses take this Kenyan, this symbolic act of acquisition from him, from who's him? The borrower, all of his properties become lean. But a document that does not come along with a Kenyan, we shouldn't even write this for the borrower, until the lender will be with him. And the borrower should hand over the document to the lender in front of our very eyes. Why are we concerned? Perhaps the document will be written now with the intent of executing the loan in Nisan in the spring. He won't borrow until Tishrei, which is the fall. So therefore, what could happen is, being that the document was executed in the end of the day, six months early, the story didn't happen until six months later, for whatever reason. It, it, it turns out to be a predated document. It didn't get to his hands until Tishrei. So therefore, if he's going to go expropriate properties over the past six months, there's something wrong with that. Who made an act of acquisition from the borrower or the seller. Or something similar. The witnesses made an act of acquisition. And the writing of the document was postponed for a long time, for whatever reason. If they know the day of the acquisition of the Kenyan, better to put in the document the date of the Kenyan. Even though it's not the date of the signature. Because it's the date of the Kenyan that's critically important. That's when the obligation takes place. And we don't have to write that this document was not written until later. Not necessary. I mean, there's no harm in it. I'm not sure what day. This, this Kenyan took place. They write the date of the writing. Witnesses who observed a business transaction in one country in one city. And they wrote the document in a different country or city. They should not record in the document the place where they observed it. Rather, write the geographical location where they signed it. Otherwise, it gets very, very confusing. Deeds of selling and buying which were not written at the right time. Even post-dated. We learned earlier that Promissory notes predated are not kosher, postdated are kosher. In the case of deeds of purchase and selling, anything written for the wrong day, I feel I'm even postdated, sulem are unfit. Why is that? Because if a sale date is wrong, it allows a foreclosure to take place inappropriately. We need to know when the sale took place. Ketzad, give me an example of where a postdated document of sale or buying can hurt. For example, the seller went, then purchased the field, from the buyer, before the postdated document dates came up. The seller bought it back. So now, who does it belong to? The seller. But the buyer is going to pull out his post-dated document of purchase, and he's going to say, Look, I have a document that proves I own it. I bought it back from you. So now, he can foreclose inappropriately. That's a possibility of where things can go wrong. Therefore, a post-dated deed of sale is a problem. Why shouldn't we concern ourselves with a document of a promissory note that's post-dated, which we said earlier is okay? Perhaps the debt will be repaid early. What happens when a debt is repaid or receipt is issued? And then he's going to pull out the post-dated promissory note, which could appear like a whole new note. And demand inappropriately. Why should we therefore not outlaw post-dated promissory notes as well? We just explain what can go wrong. The answer is, anybody who writes a post-dated promissory note, his remedy is always readily available. What's his remedy? That the receipt should be written without definition, without date. 
Because whenever the guy's going to pull out the document, the receipt is going to break it. That's the, as we learned earlier, the root source of the word shoulder. Receipt means breaking. The receipt breaks the document. The receipt says paid. also came. What if he didn't do so? Because of Ashraf Bismarck Piroin, and he dated the receipt. At the time of payment, who heaps in Allah's way, then he brought the loss upon himself. We gave him a remedy. Don't date the receipt. Okay, now the plot thickens. We learned this much earlier about an Anos. An Anos is a strong guy, a bully. And the bully comes to Mr. A and says, You have to sell me your field. Because if you don't sell me your field, you might wake up with a dead horse in your bed. The guy was a, a mafia guy. Nobody messes with these guys. They tell you to sell, you sell. But what you can do is sign a document and give it to court that this is a forced sale. Or in other ways, make it known that this is not a sale done at a free will. If somebody sold this field against his will, and he issued a protest, sometimes he can't go to court. He just notifies two witnesses. I want you to testify that I am being forced to sell. These two witnesses, their testimony will invalidate the sale. In other words, we don't want the guy to get killed because he doesn't want to sell. But just take two people and make the protest. Lodge a protest. So now what happens is this bully buys the property, but he really doesn't buy the property. We just make like he buys the property. So you shouldn't kill the guy. So this bully's money that he used to buy the property, what is it in the hands of the seller who didn't really sell him the property? It's a loan. It's an oral loan. And he doesn't use the deed of sale in any way, shape, or form to foreclose on any properties because it's an invalid deed of sale. Because this should have never been written. It was only written because the guy was threatening him. In all similar cases. So when the deed of sale was never a valid deed to begin with, it was only written because of threats. And it has no validity and it cannot be used to expropriate any properties. How do we know? Because we have witnesses who say that a protest was launched. Now we come into a complex section. The bottom line message of this section is never write two documents for the same sale. One document per sale. Why? So he gives a whole complex scenario. The reason is because it is conceivable. There are situations where somebody can foreclose and take someone's property away without having a promissory note. Really? How can somebody take a property away from a buyer if he has no promissory note? The only way he could do it is if he produces a promissory note from the borrower who then went and sold his property to the buyer. The answer is there are some situations where oral testimony will be sufficient to allow someone to foreclose on the property of a buyer. How does that work? What's the scenario? So he tells the story. Let us assume that somebody has two witnesses. Shazu, that this property, which was allegedly purchased by this purchaser, by this buyer, the witnesses will testify that this property in the hands of this buyer is stolen from this man's father. They went to my dad, they held him up and took his property. These two witnesses will go to court and testify that this buyer stole the property from his father. From his dead father. Can actually forcibly remove it from the buyer. Because we trust the witnesses in Jewish law. These two witnesses are sufficient to take the property from the buyer. So here's an example of where a property can be removed from the hands of a buyer without a document, simply by the testimony of two witnesses that the buyer never had a right to the property. Similarly speaking, these two witnesses testified that there was a whole story and his father deserved the property. The father went to court and the court decided that his father can foreclose to expropriate from the possessions of so-and-so, the kafakas, so much and so much, from this and this time. In the interim, the father died. And he didn't take the property. Now come the heirs and they say, we're ready to take it. So here are two examples of how they have been paid to The son can go foreclose on the buyer's property with simply with these two witnesses. And he has no promissory note. Therefore, because of this background, we should never issue two documents of sale for one field. Why not? In other words, never issue a second document. Why? We are suspicious of the dishonesty of people. We are suspicious of a plot. What could be the plot here? Perhaps this buyer will make a knunya, an under-the-table dishonest deal, an arrangement, in Balchayv, together with the lender, the Yitreif Shalei Kedin, and in turn, take properties illegally away from someone else. Ketzad, what is the scenario? And here, he spells out a whole long scenario. Let me just share with you, because this is complicated, from a note here, where he gives an example using biblical names. I'm going to go slow, see if you can follow this. If you can't follow it, we're going to learn in the inside of the Rambam, we'll understand it as well, hopefully. This is the scenario. I'm reading from the note in the Moiznaim Rambam. Yaakov lent money to Yehuda. He's taking somebody, giving him a name Yaakov. He lent money to Yehuda. So Yehuda owes Yaakov money. Yehuda then, the borrower, sold property to Ruvain. And he composed two deeds of sale, violating this law. Never composed two deeds of sale. But he did. Afterwards, following this, he also sold property to two more people. Let's call them Shimon and Levi. So again, Yehuda is the one who borrowed the money from Yaakov. He sold a property to Ruvain, composed two notes, mistake, and then later sold properties to Shimon and to Levi. Yaakov comes to Yehuda and tries to collect his debt. Yaakov comes to Yehuda and says, no... Yehuda pleaded bankruptcy. He says, do me something. And therefore, because he owes him the money, the court ruled that Yaakov can expropriate the property that Yehuda sold to Reuben. That's the law. You can take property from a buyer. It was sold after the date of your debt. Before Yaakov could do so, he died. So now the estate is owed property. His son, Yosef, let's call him. Yaakov's son went and expropriated the property from Reuben. As he should, because he's the son. Reuben then expropriated that property that Shimon had purchased from Yehuda. Reuben goes and takes and expropriates the property from the next buyer. 
because Magiyalo, he deserves it. Now let's look in the Rambam. One person comes, the Yitzhak saw the zoo, and will expropriate a field. The aid was using testimony, where witnesses came and said the property was taken illegally from his father. That's an expropriation without a document. Okay. The buyer will then go back. The Yitzhak Bishtar Hamechashibiyodi, using his deed of sale, he has a right to make himself whole because he was sold the property that was taken from him. Where does he go? From buyers who bought after him. When you go expropriate the property from a buyer, what happens? We learned this earlier. The deed of sale is destroyed because we don't want him using it again. Okay, good. But remember, this guy has two deeds of sale. The Yitzhak is going to make an underhanded illegal arrangement. The Yamei besaw the Shinitrukam, and he's going to take possession again from that same field because he's going to make an underhanded deal. The Yamei who should talk about and he's going to come to Yitzhak Bamacheres. The Yamei said that he's going to have his same witnesses testify in another in another court. The Yamei Alosh Tamech Hashem, then he's going to produce the second document. The Yitzhak Bei Lukuchas Achirim Shalikid didn't take from other buyers. So therefore, what is the root of the problem here? Two two documents of sale should have never been written. In Cain, in that case, says the Rambam, Mishin Eved Lashan Amechav Eidok Hayomim. If somebody lost a document of sale, a sale document. And his witnesses are still alive and well. You just said we can't issue a copy, a second document. What should we do? The answer is, they should write a second document, but it shouldn't be just a regular bill of sale. It should say, you can't collect with this document, from the properties, from free properties, and not in any way, shape, or form. We only wrote it, to establish that this field belongs to this buyer, in order that the seller or his heirs cannot expropriate it from him. It's just a copy document. We write that. Whereas 11, in promissory notes, ain't the laws, not that way. Even though the witnesses are alive, there's an acquisition that's made. And he went back at the time and said, The note that you wrote, Mr. Witnesses, is now lost. And this is where it was burned in a fire, in the great Chicago fire. Here we should never write a second document. Why? Perhaps it was paid, and the holy were forgiven. Even if it was a term, debt, and the term is not yet full. These witnesses do not allow him to collect nothing, anything. What happens if the borrower says, This loan never happened. He was established as a liar through the testimony, as will be explained, but a second document is not the answer. What does one do when a promissory note is becoming more and more and more and more and it's about to become illegible? It's almost erased completely. He gets witnesses. He comes to the court and they validate. The court validates that's one thing, but the witnesses themselves should never produce a second document even though they see it disappearing in front of them. They come to the court and the court can validate the same document. We're very concerned about two documents. You give a case in the kind of how would the court validate the case The court writes another document and they say, Oh, no, that's plainly, plainly, plainly. We who are this in this court, plainly, 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 this and this lender pulled out and erased document in front of us. Money being plainly, the date was this and this day, plainly, plainly, you know. And these were the witnesses, and that's what they write a validation of this document. In cost of what they write was cockney, they do some shalladim. We need to ask and we interrogated these witnesses. We found this correct. They have a shalladim, they can actually use this to collect. They ain't so lucky, they don't have to validate it again. They make us okay if they didn't. So I'll be dialed in the machine, I should sign the dozen after proof that the first witnesses are good. You dial shalladim, you start out. What if a promissory note was ripped? It has a tear in it. You know, a dollar is a promissory note of sorts. It's a Federal Reserve note. What if a dollar is ripped? Kosher. He says it's kosher. A promissory note could have a tear in it. Nimchak. What if the wording is rubbed out or muddled? It's not clear. It's still recognizable. Kosher. It's kosher. Nikak But if it's ripped as the court would rip something, how does the court rip something? You ever see what they do with a get today? They take and they make an X cut in it. This way and that way. This is unfit because that's the cut of the court. Going in both directions, horizontally and vertically. What if somebody paid a portion of his obligation, of his debt? If he wants to exchange his document, and the court could replace his document going back to the original date. But the witnesses should not take this initiative. It should be done by a court. If they want to, you have to shave it, better to write a receipt. What if somebody comes to pay his debt? To pay his debt. And the lender says, when the borrower says, no, give me the document, I'm ready to pay. He says, I don't know, I lost the document, I can't find it. I left it in my old pants, and I don't know where my pants are. He writes a receipt. He can repay the whole debt. The receipt is great. Remember, the word shover means to break. The receipt breaks the document. And the borrower can have the court establish a ban against anyone who's concealing a promissory note. It's illegal to conceal a promissory note and come and collect. What if the borrower comes and he says, Listen, Mr. Court, I am certain this guy has his promissory note. I just saw it and he's hiding it. And he has sinister plans. And he says, I know the note is in his possession. In fact, he just put it in his other pocket. So what are you going to do? They check his pocket. It's not there. Rabbi says that Rambam, my teachers ruled that the, bar, that the lender should be forced to take a rabbinic, loan, a rabbinic oath that the document was lost. Then and only then should a receipt be written and the debt will be considered repaid. Somebody produces a promissory note for 100 zoos. He comes to court and he says, listen, my dear court, this is a promissory note that this guy owes me $100,000. He says to the court, be so kind. All I'm asking you to do is to give me two promissory notes, each 50. Is this something the court should do or not? I'm going to let you keep the hundred promissory note. Ain't nice and they should not do that. Bad idea. Why? Because it is a privilege. It is a merit. It's a good thing for the borrower to have the note in one lump sum. hundred. Perhaps part of the debt will be repaid. Whenever part of the debt is repaid, it hurts the validity of the document somewhat. It impairs it. 
As we learned specifically in chapter 14, when the legal power of a promissory note is impaired, the lender must take an oath before demanding payment. So it benefits the borrower. So also if the lender pulls out two documents of 50 each, the Amari says, do me a favor. As they say, used to say when I was a kid in New Jersey, make me a favor. The Amar Asu Li make it for 100 instead of 250s. Ain Aisin we do not do it for him. We should validate the existing note. Because the borrower benefits from having two notes. So he doesn't come to court with one note and demand everything. He'll have to come to court twice. It's better to, for the borrower to have 250 notes against him than 100. Closing paragraph of this chapter. If the lender produces a promissory note for 100, the Omar, and he says, Listen, my friends, destroy this note. And write a note instead for 50. Why would he do that? Why would a lender come with a promissory note of 100 and say, Write a note for 50? Because he claims to have been paid half the debt. But claims half is still outstanding. He wants clarity. That's his story to the court. We do not listen to him. Why? Because something is fishy. Maybe the borrower paid it all off. What happens when a borrower pays off a promissory note? A receipt is written. So the borrower is walking around with a receipt saying 100 was paid. One day this lender is going to show up in a court and he's going to say, Hello, Mr. Court. I have a document that says this man owes me $50,000. The guy's going to say, Hey, I have a receipt of 100. That's a wrong number. The ATL is going to pull out his receipt. They'll say, a hundred is not fifty, mister. This is another, another note, another loan. Get out of here. Get out of here. That's why we should never replace one document for another. End of chapter 23. Ambam. Mishnah Torah. Hilchais, the laws of Malga, the lender, below, and the borrower. Moving right along. Pedic, Arba, the Esrim, chapter 24. In case you're wondering how many chapters there are, <laughs> there are 27. This is 24 out of 27. Aleph 1, again, as I've explained earlier, these are the ABCs of business law. Real estate law, lending, borrowing, finance. Karbi Arno, we've already explained earlier, chapter 23. Halacha 5, that if there is a promissory note, which was accompanied by an act of acquisition, which makes it that much more powerful, we learned earlier in the last chapter, if this borrower comes to the scribe and the court and says, I want you to write this document for me, even though the lender is not there, we write it. Why? Because he's the borrower. And a kinyan was done, which kicks in the obligation. And so also, with the same logic, we can compose a deed of sale for a seller, even though the buyer is not there. Why? Because who does the deed of sale benefit? The buyer. It doesn't benefit the seller. When the seller asks for it, he probably has a reason. But we don't have to be wary. Along the same lines of this logic, the lender comes along and says to the scribe or to the court, write a receipt that this loan was paid. Even though the borrower is not there, we assume that he's about to have a loan paid. He wanted the receipt. But again, nobody has anything to lose but him. Or the shaver the isha, write a receipt for a woman that her ksuba was paid. Even though the wife is not there, if she wants to write a receipt to her husband that the ksuba obligation was paid, she probably has a reason. The get leish, or the scribes could write a bill of divorce for which the man initiates, even though his wife is not there. The bill of divorce has to be written with the intent of the husband or the wife, but she doesn't necessarily have to be there, at least in theory. Of course, practically today, you have to have the husband and wife there under most circumstances. All of the above can be done because the person who is asking to do the deed, they're not the ones that will benefit. But we do not write a document of betrothal or marriage without both parties. We do not write a document of sharecropping arrangement between the farmer and the sharecropper or other types of commission work, business contracts or what have you. Or a document that says that both parties to the lawsuit choose certain judges. Or documents outlining the arguments of a particular principle in the lawsuit. The whole Nasib and any acts of court, Elamidashneim should not be written unless they're both aware of this and knowledgeable and they both agree. The Chalashtoros Ha'elu, all of the above documents, we have to be very careful with the particulars like other documents. These are muy importante, very important documents. Whereas the first group, being that the borrower comes and says, write it, we're not so concerned. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, and so on. Now comes a question in general. Who pays the fees of the scribe? Documents have to be written by scribes. Document processing people. We're having our legal department write this. You get a bill for the legal department's writing from the bank. Documents don't happen by themselves. Who pays? In our world, California, we have everything goes through escrow. Who pays escrow fees? That's a good question. You better make sure you know who pays escrow fees before you sign. When it comes to documents of loans, as a rule, who wants to loan more? These are interest-free loans. These are mitzvah loans. Who wants to loan more? The lender or the borrower? Obviously the borrower. The borrower should pay for the document. Again, these are not loans at 18%. These are interest-free loans, mitzvah loans. When it comes to buying and selling, who pays, the buyer or the seller? The buyer pays. Because he wants to purchase the property, and the deed of sale will serve as proof that he owns it. The woman has to pay the scribe the cost of writing the get. Why is that? 
Because usually the woman wants it more than the man, because the woman wants to be able to take this, get and be married. And obviously she's very anxious to do this. And he brings down here that according to the Torah, the husband has to pay for the writing of the divorce. But our sages wanted to encourage that when the marriage is over, the divorce be done. So in certain situations, they encourage her to pay to get it done. It shouldn't just lose the opportunity. Because the husband was a shlomazel and didn't have any money or didn't want to pay any money. Now, the groom, the chassan has to pay for the document of marriage and so on. And the recipient, or the sharecropper, or the renter, or the worker, gives the money for the composition of the contract of this business deal. Why? Because it benefits the sharecropper and the worker and so on not to get cheated when it comes to paying. A document agreeing to appointing a certain court for litigation, or arguments of litigants and claims. Both sides have to equally share the burden of the cost of these documents. So this is a chapter dealing with in the beginning of who pays for documents, which again is a big issue in today's world. Gimel, you go to a bank and borrow money, they're going to charge you for document writing. Both, in the case of documents, who are written for one person, when the other person is not there, which we learned earlier, should not be written unless they're both there and aware. Like the document written for a lender, or for a buyer. Here comes another law that witnesses must know the names in the document. You can't just sign if you don't know what you're signing. Who plainly been plainly the witnesses have to know that this is Moshe, son of Yaakov. Is that plainly been plainly? This is Yosef, son of Abraham. Because if the parties are unknown to the witnesses, it's a problem. We can create all kinds of forgeries. Maybe two people will come. They'll make an underhanded dishonest arrangement. They're going to say, let's take these witnesses, we'll tell them whatever we want to. They'll change their names to other names. And they will admit the loan one to another. And then they're going to have a document they're going to collect from a stranger. I had this fascinating experience in this department. Fantastic. I went to the DMV, for those who are not in California. That's the Department of Motor Vehicles, where we get driver's licenses and so on and so forth, to renew my license because it expired at my birthday. Thank God I had an appointment, because the ones who didn't have an appointment, there was a line of about 200 people, and I walked right up to the front. Anyway, I, I did my thing, and I showed them my old license, and they tore up my old license, you know, just like it says in the Rambo. And uh, I paid the fee, and, and so on and so forth, and da 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 And then they said, give me your thumb. Okay, here's my thumb. I said, you know, I'm a wise guy. I said, you want blood? They said, no, maybe next week. So they took and they took my thumbprint, and they put it on a computer or something like that. I don't know what, what they did. Okay, fine, I have my thumbprint. Okay, then they said, go to Windows 17 and take a picture. Okay, I go to Windows 17 to take a picture. And there's a lot of people waiting in Windows 17 to take a picture. I finally come to the head of the line. I say, okay, I'm here for a picture. They say, give me your thumb. They want to make sure that I'm the guy who's taking the picture. Otherwise, anyone can take the picture and have a license. They can change people from Windows 3 to Windows 17. Wow. Pretty smart to DMV. Next time, I'm going to borrow somebody else's thumb. Okay. So we've got to know what we're doing here because we're concerned with dishonesty. There are con men all over the place. Dalid, call me, if anybody wants to confess anything, no, 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 okay. Call me, now the question is, how do we ascertain that somebody's name is somebody? What if somebody comes and says, my name is Shlomo, son of David? I say, really? How do I know your name is Shlomo? Maybe your name is Ben Franklin? Because you've been in this community for 30 days, and for 30 days, that's what you've been known as, we call you up to the Torah, we get all kinds of stuff. We don't have to be suspicious that it's somebody else with another name. Who she know, and he just changed his name, because he's in order to fool the world. He's doing a con game. But that's his communion to make some kind of underhanded deal. A plot. Because if you say you have to be suspicious, where does this end? If 30 days is not enough, is 30 years enough? And of course, there are people who go establish false identities. You know, that's, but you know what? You can't be paranoid. That's the way the world goes. But people, therefore, practically speaking, if somebody was not established as so-and-so on, as so-and-so, son of so-and-so, for at least 30 days, he's only been around for two days, he just pulled in, he says, I write this document, I Let's not write any documents until he proves that this is his name. Because we're concerned he may be creating a false document. To some extent, and that goes back to my DMV story earlier, we have a benefit that we have photos today. You know, many courts, many bet dins, many Jewish courts, you come to them for a marriage or a divorce or any kind of document, they'll take a picture. The rabbi will take a picture with his cell phone and make it part of your file. Because the question is, who gave the divorce? How do I know you gave the divorce? Maybe I hired some. So today, pictures are used in many courts. Uh, let's see. I think I'm up to hate, right? Call star any document that will be produced. And the borrower will argue and say, You're telling me in this document I owe money to this lender? Any I owe him nothing. Bunished with a capital G. Maybe a con man came, wrote this document, said his name is my name, admitted that he owes this guy money, and that's how the guy has a document. He's a liar. Aisha Omar already said, I don't know this guy, I owe somebody else. This guy's a con man, he's a liar, a thief. He claims his name is like the name of the guy I owe money to. So what do we do? Do we as a court believe the document, or do we believe this guy's arguments? Being that we have not established that there are two people with the same exact names in the community, we're not concerned. Because if there were two people in the same community with the same exact names, we'd know about it. 
You know, in, in, in Chabad these days, every bride is Chayamushka and every groom is Menachem Mendel, you know. You don't know who got married. Chayamushka married Menachem Mendel. Shechazaka, who we can safely assume, we're going to have to assume, this goes back to the earlier law, that witnesses will not sign a document, unless they know the principles of the document. We also have to assume, we, we want to establish that it's a presumption. That witnesses would not sign a document unless they know that they are adults, are adults, and mentally competent. And that the witnesses would not sign. Unless they know how to read and sign. We're not going to assume that we have illiterate witnesses who can't read and write. We have to assume, make certain basic assumptions. So we trust the maturity of the witnesses and that they're responsible people and they've identified the people and so on and so forth. What if you have witnesses who simply don't know how to sign their names? You know, you have an illiterate person, doesn't know how to write. So what do you do? These guys are the witnesses. Somebody took a piece of paper, wrote the guy's name on the piece of paper, and then he traced, put it under the document, and he traced his name. He signed by tracing. What we do is, if we, the court, know about it, is we administer rabbinic lashing to them. In other words, we really show our displeasure to them as a court. It's a terrible thing. If you can't sign your name, don't be a witness. And the document is considered invalid. There's an adorable story I, I love to tell. It's an oldie but goodie. This man came from the old country, and he applies for a job to be the shamish in the shul, to clean up the books and so on and so forth, and open and close. And, and they were paying him in the 1920s, three dollars a week. So they said, you got the job, you sound like you know your stuff, and so on and so forth. You're a knowledgeable man, you know how to daven, you know how to read the Torah. But do you, do you know how to read and write? Because people are going to make donations, you got to sign receipts. He says, no, I, I, I don't write English. So he says, I'm sorry, you can't have the job. So they, they, they did not let him have the job as the shamish in the Orchard Street synagogue. Anyway, the man became a peddler, and before you know it, he bought and sold. He became a real estate mongol, a, a millionaire. One day he comes to the bank to execute a loan for a big development, and the lady who is the, the cleric gives him the document, says, sign here. He pulls out a penny, signs X. He says, wow, you are worth mega millions, and you don't even know how to sign your name. Imagine what you would be today if you could sign your name. He says, yeah, I'd be the shamish in the Orchard Street Shul. That's an oldie but goodie. Uh, Zion 7, Reish Bezin, we have the head of the court who knows what this document is about. And his scribe read him the gist of the document. Being that the head of the court knows his scribe, and the scribe is afraid to mess with the head of the court because he'll lose his job. The question here is, does the head of the court have to read every document? Or can he sign something put in front of him by his scribe? The answer is yes, he can. If he can't trust your scribe, I mean, can I sign something put in front of me by my secretary? The answer is yes. I want to get through the day, even though the Rebbe, as far as I understand, I've read this many times, insisted that he reads every letter before he signs it. Even standard blessing letters, happy wedding, happy bar mitzvah, the Rebbe read every letter, made corrections, changed titles, changed dates, and so on and so forth. In fact, it's pretty dangerous when you sign letters that your secretary puts in front of you. Depends how much your secretary's paid. If she's paid the $3 an hour, you're going to be a lot of mistakes there. I'm just kidding, $3 an hour. That was like a, an exaggeration. Okay, $30 an hour. But in mind, you know, you say, so the head of the court believes, trust his scribe, he may sign the document, even though he himself didn't read it. This is only for the head of this court. It's not for anyone else. For example, a witness must word for word read the entire document. Two people were in the city. You know, very often, I'm called up to sign a ketubah. The ketubah was prepared by the rabbi who was performing the wedding. And, and before I sign, I said, let me look at it. Let me read what I'm signing. You have to read what you're signing. Occasionally, I found a mistake. It happens. Two people were in the city. They both have the same name. Joseph, the son of Simon. Joseph ben Shimon. They cannot demand payment from one another. Neither can anyone else demand payment from them. Unless the witnesses of the document came. I know there are two Yosef and Shimon's. This is the document we signed, and this is the man, and we know what we're doing. Otherwise, who knows what Yosef and Shimon we're talking about? You know, Joe Smith is Joe Smith. So also, the same problem will arise. If one of these Yosef and Shimon's wants to divorce his wife, they cannot divorce their wives unless they're both in the room. <laughs> And the court clearly knows who is who. So also, if somebody finds a document that says all promissory notes of Yosef and Shimon are paid, a receipt, then both their loans are considered to be paid. So we got a problem. How do we live? How do we do business? Very simple. This is what we do. The case of Yasu Elish Shmeseim Shobin, which may be Shobin, what should people do if their names and fathers' names are the same? They go a third generation. They go Yosef, son of Shimon, son of Yaakov. What if their grandfathers also have the same name? They should write the redhead. The blonde, the blondini, and so on and so forth. Because, you know, they used to have in the old country, the heicher, the kurzer, the tall one, the short one, the hooker, the hunchback. What if they both look the same? They were both blondinis. Then you write their pedigree. Are they a Kohen, a Levi? What if they were both Levi? Shnei Kohen, they were both Kohen. They should write further generations. You can go back to Abraham Lincoln. There has to be a differentiation. We need clarity. What if somebody produces a document in which it says, Ani, plainy, ben plainy, I am so-and-so, son of so-and-so. I borrowed a hundred zulus from you. It doesn't say the name of the lender, it just says you. 
but the U is pulling out the document. Anyone who produces this document can collect with it. We can't put him off a and say, the borrower can't say, hey, this is not your document, but this must have dropped from somebody. So also, what if there are two people with the same name? For example, Yosef, the son of Shimon, who live in the same city. One of them produces a document of a promissory note against a member of the community. The borrower cannot say, you're not the Yosef, Shimon, I owe money to, I owe the other guy. He's the one that dropped it. Whoever produces it collects. We're not going to go and we don't have to be concerned that it fell because in principle there's no end to these concerns. Two people. Each one produced promissory notes against each other. The second cannot say to the first, Are you crazy? If I owed you the money, then how do you borrow money from me? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to make sense. You produce a document, you collect. They each collect their debt. But it doesn't make sense. This is not about sense. This is about valid, validated documents. What if one document was for a hundred zoos, a hundred thousand, and the other document was for the same amount? And we talk about levels of properties. We talked about grade A properties. Is what has to be paid for damages. Grade B has to be paid for loans. Grade C has to be paid for divorce, suba, or death. What if they both have grade A? Or they both have grade B? Or they both have grade C? We're not concerned. Each one can insist that he get what he deserves according to the style of his obligation. What if one guy had grade A and grade B? The other guy had only grade C. One, being that he's a creditor, collects from grade B. The other, as we learned earlier, being that the guy has no grade B, has no other choice, he collects from Zibudis from grade C. What if a person produces a promissory note against a friend, against another? And the other produces a deed of sale that says that he sold him a field. If it was in a place where a buyer pays money, and then the seller writes the document, this fellow's promissory note is null and void. Because he says, if I owed it to you, you should have paid off the debt. But a place where you write first and then you give, in this case, the promissory note is valid, because he says, I sold you the field, in order that you have clearly known real estate, which I can collect my note. So therefore, the logic has to make sense to have the setting here make sense. End of chapter 24.